Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Smirconish Podcast for Independent Minds. A good portion of my Mother's Day afternoon was spent not only with mom, but also with the New York Times. Page one above the fold yesterday, the secrets Ed Koch carried. Let me just give you the, the lead and then some. Edward I. Koch looked like the busiest septuagenarian in New York glad-handing well-wishers at his favorite restaurants, gesticulating through television interviews long after his three terms as mayor, Mr. Koch could seem as though he was scrambling to fill every hour with bustle. He dragged friends to the movies, pursuing a side career as a film film critic. He urged new acquaintances to call him Judge, a joking reference to his time presiding over the People's Court. But as his 70s ticked by, Mr. Koch described to a few friends a feeling he could not shake. A deep loneliness. He wanted to meet someone, he said. Did they know anyone who might be partner material? Someone a little younger than me. Someone to make up for lost time. I want a boyfriend, he said to one friend, Charles Kaiser. It was an aching admission shared with only a few from a politician whose brash ubiquity and relentless New York evangelism helped define the modern mayorality even as he strained to conceal an essential fact of his biography. Mr. Koch was gay. Matt Flegenheimer and Rosa Goldenson wrote this story, and Matt joins me now. Hey, Matt, this is a a real long, well-done, serious piece of work, and I appreciated it, so thank you for being here. Thank you so much for saying that. Thanks for having me. So let, let's talk about why, though, initially. And I, I took note of the fact that online, Carolyn Ryan, the deputy managing editor, even felt compelled to explain why we wrote this story. From your perspective, why do it? Sure. Well, I think we wanted to be very clear with readers about why we were doing this. This was someone who lived a profoundly consequential life for New York, this sort of grand public life, and fundamentally it had profound implications for the city and, and its constituents. And, you know, as much as we had known about him over the years, um, and certainly his sexual orientation had been a subject of conversation for decades, um, friends of his across those decades felt it was time in this moment to kind of tell this story for the sweep of history, that there was, you know, as much as he tried to compartmentalize his public and private existences to some degree, he was at the end of the day, one man, and that man, shapes the city in such profound ways that giving the full context to his arc seemed like a a valuable service. Carolyn Ryan also noted that those who know the story best are now elderly, so that there was a sort of timing element to the Times analysis. Sure. I think, you know, conscious contemporaries obviously um, are 
getting older and in many cases have, have passed away themselves. He died in 2013. Um, so there was a sense of wanting to really capture this in a moment when those who knew the story best were around to tell it. More than anything else, as I read the piece, I, I, it just saddened me. It, like it saddened me that that he had this inner turmoil for whatever reason, and I'll ask you about that. But but that you know he lived a, a very full life professionally, but with this with this nagging aspect of unhappiness. Sure, and and it's really um, particularly at the end of his life that he starts saying to some friends of his that he wants a partner, and that this is something that he considers, he said to one friend, really, uh, you know, one of the few things in his life he didn't succeed at. And, and he obviously, uh, those who know anything about his political career, he had a very high self-regard in, in politics and did not think he failed at things very often. And um, there was a certain amount of um, sort of lamenting that this part of his life had not necessarily worked out in the way that he had hoped. He was asking friends if they knew anyone who might be partner material, and this was a refrain in, in some social circles of his later in his life. Matt, for the benefit of, of younger listeners who, who don't remember, didn't know uh, Ed Koch, he was an Army veteran, as you point out. He was a lawyer. He then went to Congress and then ultimately served three terms as New York City mayor. It was Ed Koch who, you point out, you know, put the Cuomos on a path toward Albany because he defeated Mario Cuomo. He did. There was this um, sort of grand epic primary and then general election in, in 1977 between the two of them, um, these two sort of titans of New York politics who, you know, faced and circled each other over the many years um, then and, and they came after. And yet Ed Koch was this, you know, not particularly well-known congressman, um, not necessarily thought to be any kind of overwhelming favorite in the race. He persuaded a very well-regarded campaign operative, David Garth, um, to join his campaign in 77. And, um, you know, the rest is history. There was obviously um, in this campaign a sort of undercurrent of rumor-mongering about his sexual orientation. Um, there's this um, sort of infamous in New York lore um, issue of, of posters going up in Queens that said, vote for Cuomo, not the homo. And... Uh, which the Cuomo campaign, I should be clear, has denied responsibility for across the decades. Um, and this kind of campaign gambit that the campaign operative for Koch, David Garth, came up with was to really send him around the city with a, 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 a you know, high-profile supporter of his, Bess Meyerson, who had been a Miss America, this very glamorous um, campaign surrogate. And it sort of fueled this kind of tabloid speculation in a sort of wink-wink way that Maybe Koch and Meyerson were an item. Maybe they'd get married. Koch sort of coyly talked about her as his first lady. And this was intended to really kind of turn people off the sense on, on the questions of his sexual orientation. Right. All the while, Koch was publicly denying, going to great lengths to publicly deny that he was gay. He was. Um, he, he said something, we have this in the piece, um, in 77, in response to questions about whether Bess Meyerson is in this kind of public-facing role to dispel rumors about him, he denies that and says, you know, it's it's whatever God made you. Um, he doesn't happen to be gay, but he would hope that if he was, I'm paraphrasing here, um, that he would have uh, no problem saying so. Um, but obviously, 
um, he takes that sort of denial or deflection um, with him to the grave. Um, and there are different moments over the course of his public life. In 1989, at one point, he says he's heterosexual. Um, but by and large, in the later years, he defaulted to a line of it's none of your business. Um, even, you know, friends had hoped that he would come out even towards the end of his life, potentially. And he just sort of plainly said, I don't want to. And that was about as far as the conversation got. In- Important that we uh, we won't give it all away. People need to invest the time and really read what what Matt and a colleague have written. But important to note for our purposes right now that his professional life played out in the context of the AIDS epidemic. And so now you have the added complication of the gay community, you know, demanding response from governor from the government. Pardon me. You've got Larry Kramer, the AIDS activist living in the same building. To me, this was the most stunning anecdote in your piece, living in the same building as Ed Koch and muttering to his dog under his breath anytime he would see Koch. Tell that story if you wouldn't mind. Sure. So, so this is after Koch's mayor, um, and he's moved back uh, to Greenwich Village, that um, he and Larry Kramer share a, a building. Larry Kramer was um, the playwright and an AIDS activist who was... Um, profoundly, profoundly critical of the mayor and the administration um, in their solicited response to the crisis and um, really blamed Koch personally um, and tied that directly to his sexuality um, for not being responsive enough on AIDS. Um, So when they would, uh, this was a story Larry Kramer told before he passed a couple of years ago, um, when they passed each other in the the lobby of this building um, and Koch, you know, was... I guess, trying to say hello to the dog, sort of a friendly gesture. Kramer sort of mumbles to the dog, that's the man who killed all of daddy's friends, and then kind of yanks her away, and they, they go on their way. So this this sort of animosity towards Koch um, in a lot of the gay community has, has persisted, certainly long after he left office. You capture a scene when he's still in office, when 3,000 aid, AIDS activists descend on City Hall, and he has he has openly said that he's heterosexual. They Many of them carry signs mocking him, including, quote, and I'm Cary Grant. Yes, and look, it's, I think it's important to, to note the context um, around all of this. AIDS was um, a staggering crisis, a sprawling crisis. Um, there were often no good answers, and it's it's hard to measure how exactly his personal identity might have impacted individual policy decisions. But we do know what activists have told us, which is that, you know, city officials, advisors to the mayor, protectors of the mayor were very plain with them in at least a couple of instances about the political distance that Koch had to keep from this issue, given the rumors about him um, and sort of tying it directly to these perceptions of the sexuality. Um, so I do think that's an important point to make. Obviously, you know, there were often um, just tragic consequences of the disease itself, um, and the policy decisions were not often straightforward. But there was a sense that if people learned anything about Ed Koch when he was in office, he did not mind, you know, banging the podium and really driving attention towards an issue that he saw as paramount. And on AIDS, they just did not feel that kind of public-facing energy from him. Um, in the gay community. And, and it was pretty clear that he did not um, want the most public facing role on this particular crisis, even as it was ravaging the city.
He had at least one sustained romantic relationship, Richard Nathan, a high-achieving Harvard-educated healthcare consultant, according to on-record interviews with six people who knew about the pair. What happened to that relationship? Sure. So as um, Trash is running for office in 77, um, he really seems to be creating some distance um, and it's, it's worth noting that his um, campaign consultant, we discussed, David Garth, um, confronts Koch uh, as he comes onto the campaign about whether the rumors are true and suggests that he wouldn't work for him if they are. Um, so Koch recognizes, even within his own circle, um, that there are people who would see his being gay as, as prohibitive politically. Um, so he does, um, it becomes quite clear, pull away. There's a discussion um, of whether this gentleman, Richard Nathan, might be a member of the administration. Koch says, I can't do that, um, according to um, uh, General Arthur Schwartz, who, who was hosting sort of Sunday brunches for the team as they were um, trying to elect him mayor. And Koch really recognizes um, the choice he has to make. And um, Richard Nathan tells friends um as the campaign ends and in the years after that advisors to the mayor, associates of the mayor very unsubtly suggest that he should probably find another place to live. Um, and he ends up moving to California and um, leaving New York. And that's really the end of the relationship. Matt, the why question, he goes to his grave in 2013, never having acknowledged his sexuality and reading the piece i thought it came off more as a political calculus than something else but by the way uh you referenced david garth i know someone who knew garth well garth is gone too who who even posted on your site saying that his knowledge of garth suggests to him that garth probably just wanted to know what he was dealing with in a client not that it was a pejorative about Koch, but rather if he was going to have to deal with this as the campaign unfolded, he wanted to know you know, what he had on his hands in that regard. But be that as, sure. as it may, on the, on the why question, is it that it was a political calculus and he thought that he couldn't be successful doing the things that he wanted to do if people knew that he was gay? Or was there some embarrassment, self-loathing aspect of this? Obviously, you've thought about it. What do you think? Sure. And I, I have thought about it. I, I don't want to overstate what we know or, or do any kind of psychoanalysis on, on some of this stuff. I think I think what's clearer is the question of, of later in his life. His friends do think um, a lot of his hesitation long after there would have been any political cost to him for coming out after he'd been out of office, after he was not going to run for office again, that the hesitation had much more to do with the sort of grudges politically that he had some of which we've discussed, the, the sort of Larry Kramer elements, um, folks who had sort of taunted him over the years and and really hoped to see him outed. Um, there was a sense that he didn't want to give those people the satisfaction of, of seeing him come out. Um, and that was a, a, a portion of the hesitation. He didn't put it that way. He often, in his later years, talked about standing for a higher principle of, you know, preventing other candidates after him from being subjected to this kind of invasive personal questioning. Um, but the friends of his we spoke to really thought it had a lot to do with 
those grudges and his pride and not wanting to um, give an inch to, to people like Kramer. And finally, will you say a word about the reaction? I've noticed that on this story, and I don't think I've seen this previously in, in the Times, and I'm I'm an avid reader of the comments because I always like to know what people are saying. You are actually responding to readers of the story on the website. In, in a couple of cases, and, and that's, that's not um, entirely new for the Times. But, um, yeah, we, we wanted to really um, be thoughtful about how the story was presented, thoughtful about how... Um, we considered some of the responses coming in and just sort of be present on this one to give readers a, a clear sense, um, both in the story and in the sort of accompanying bits of why we were doing this, why we think it's important and why this history resonates today, which I, I think it pretty clearly does. Matt Flagenheimer, thanks so much for your willingness to come on and discuss this important piece. It's on my website and in all my social media, and I hope people will take the time to read it. Thanks so much. Take care. Matt co-authored that with Rosa Goldenson, and I highly recommend that you read it. This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. A number of issues here. I know that there are some among us who are in the who cares category. I'm definitely not in that category as someone who met Ed Koch, followed Ed Koch. He was a a very colorful and dominant personality for, you know, the three terms that he served as New York City's mayor. I mentioned that Carolyn Ryan, the deputy managing editor, published a piece online, why we wrote this story, and says the story is a piece, among other things, the story is a piece of social history showing how not too long ago homophobia, even in the fervently liberal city of New York, all but prohibited ambitious political figures from being open about their sexual orientation. This unwritten chapter in the Koch biography was essentially urgent for us to do now, 
given that many of those who know the story best are elderly. It is also especially resonant at this moment as we watch openly gay politicians rise on the city and national stage and gay rights once again become the center of major national debates. I know that won't be some of you won't accept that as a sufficient justification of a guy who died a decade ago and chose to go to his grave not acknowledging his sexuality. The Times feels otherwise. Uh, there's also the question, and I asked it of Matt, and you, you see his answer, and, and Koch was an irascible guy. I, I, it makes sense to me that he would not have wanted to give the Larry Kramer critics in his world the satisfaction of him then coming out long after he was in office and when the AIDS crisis, thankfully, had been managed. But there is the question of, of why would he choose to stay uh, you know, closeted even when he was out of office. And I said at the outset, the word, the one word that most I mostly I associated with this after it was just sad that the, the, the guy could have been so. And I'm sure many of you will call and say, hey, Michael, I, too, was or still am closeted and feel that same ache. But my heart broke for him that he couldn't do both, that he that in his mind, for whatever reason, he couldn't do both. It is presented, I thought, as a political decision. But, you know, how will we ever know? How will we ever know? Call me and let's talk about, uh, you know what else it reminds me of? It reminds me of, I have some in mind when I say this, but some performers, some singers, I best not name names because maybe they're not out, but I believe them to be out, and yet they've written some of the greatest love songs about heterosexual relationships, and I feel the same way. Like, what, what, what is it like to be to be a gay man who has written songs, sung songs that are hits about love with a woman, expressly a woman, not just a love song, but a love song about a man and a woman, and you're singing it, you know, to a live audience, 20,000 people, and those are not your words. Well, love is love. It's the same words. It's just, it, the, you know, you can be thinking about it slightly different gender. I don't think so, TC. I, I'm hard-pressed to identify, like, a musician who is a guy who is You could be thinking about, like, Sam, and you can either be thinking Samantha or Samuel. You know what I'm saying to you? I don't think so. I don't mm. think it works that way. Yes. If, if you think of some of the love rockers, love. the rockers among us, if they sang songs about a same-sex relationship with the song. Okay, I'm off on a tangent. I don't even know why the hell I even... Why? Who are you I'm, thinking I'm, of? I'm thinking of the inner turmoil of Ed Koch. Okay, That's what fine. I'm thinking of. It's sad. I'm thinking about how painful it must have it must have been for him. Will we ever but, get to a point where also, it's not hard I, to come I, out? I have to say something else, though. There is an element here that we do need to discuss of, of deceit. I mean, he acted as if Bess Meyerson, you know, always, always the words associate the first, you know, Jewish Miss America is always what appears in the same sentence. But to actually have today, does no one ever say a beard to actually use? Only if you're watching the 76ers. Okay. To, <laughs> to use a beard in that style, is, is that okay? I, I, wish, I wish it didn't have to happen. But there are some among us who have an issue with it, and it's ridiculous, but some do. Right. That's the problem. Yeah. You're not the problem. I'm not the problem. This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4 
Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. Hey, John, I want to take your call before I go to break. Tell me what you most wanted to say. Oh, yeah. So, like, my oldest son is gay. Um, and I spent my life trying to tell him not to make, like, your education, your job stuff as much as you could about it. Like, don't make it the center of your attention in in your workplace. So, and, and like, then you struck a nerve with me just now when you're talking about deceitful lyrics and stuff. When you look at Judas Priest, that dude went around net, always hiding it and wrote lyrics that were completely kind of like a, a flip over on everybody that was his fans. But I, I didn't even care anyway, because the music's still good. It's like, it shouldn't matter as long as the guy does a great job. And Koch was, a, was it Mayor Koch was a good mayor. You know, he, I, I like personally like Giuliani better. I don't think David Jacobs was that great, but it wasn't because of his color. It's because he was, I don't know, he was ineffective, you know? I don't, I don't want to take but up you can, your but time. You can but under, you can understand. I mean, the, the reason that this story is particularly, and, and thank you, John, the reason this story is particularly interesting is because he presides during the AIDS crisis. And individuals are dying, men are dying by the hundreds and then by the thousands, and they, they know. Those of us who lived in the Northeast Corridor while Koch was around, we, we thought we knew. There's not a shock here. It's not like I'm telling you, hey, Ed Koch was gay, and you're like, holy crap, Ed Koch was gay? Really? No, nobody is of that Nobody's of that opinion today. In the gay community, because they believed, and some of them knew he was gay, they felt particularly let down because in the midst of the AIDS crisis, he wouldn't acknowledge it. Now, maybe Ed Koch would say, if I acknowledge it, even though we're in the most liberal of cities, I'm going to lose some support, and therefore I'm not going to be able to do the things that you need me to do. But the idea of the playwright uh, Larry Kramer living in the same Greenwich Village apartment building as Ed Koch, walking his dog, Kramer, and Koch walks in, and Kramer says to the dog, there's the guy that you know killed so many of Daddy's friends, kind of brings it home. All politics really are local. Michael Smirconish. Hey, Phil, you're in Westchester, New York. Thank you so much for the phone call. How you doing, Michael? I just want oh, to good. ask you, uh, did you start this story by what's prefacing all this is they want to take his name off the bridge because he was anti-gay with the AIDS situation, or did you not mention that? I, I didn't think that was a really serious effort. I mean, is is there really truth that that is 
a possibility? Oh, yeah. I, got, I thought it was Maloney, a... Maloney's on board with that, too. Yeah. They, I, they're, they're, uh, the, this is an AOC uh, Maloney-backed uh, issue. It's, it's getting traction. They want to take his name off the 59th Street Bridge. And the reason they want to do that is because he, they feel, did not support the gay community with AIDS as a closeted man during his administration. And that's probably what prefaced this New York Times article. So it's really important to understand what's going on in New York right now with regard to the Ed Koch uh, legacy when you give the story. And the, the, the story is basically trying to take his name off of a very Phil, prominent I, bridge. Phil, I thought it was uh, a tiny group with no political standing. Maybe I misread the dynamics. I didn't take it seriously. I think that would be a horrible thing to do. Well, you know, Maloney, you know, Representative Maloney. Yeah, you know, she's yeah. And she, was a, she put his name on the bridge, so it's uh, a reversal for her. Um, I just want to say— I mean, say, just, think, know, just think, the, think, about the, just think about the logic of that. Oh, you didn't tell us you were gay, therefore your name comes off the bridge. It's bizarre. The whole yeah. thing's bizarre. I, and and right. I just want to say, you know, I, I grew up in Queens in the 80s and 90s. Uh, I'm an airline captain, and up until the mid— up until recently, you really could not be out of the closet in the cockpit. And even now, I still pause and see who my audience is. So to, to go back as a gay man and say, oh, this guy should have been out uh, in the 70s while he was running for mayor and he should have been out and loud in front of all this, it's, it's hypocritical. But furthermore, I do want to correct one thing that you said in the common misconception about New York politics. New York is not really as liberal as you think it is. And I'm sure growing up in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania, you're going to know what I'm talking about, especially in the 80s and 90s. This guy, to get elected, needed outer borough, Queens, Brooklyn, Bronx, Staten Island voters. Uh, at, at the time, those were basically, you know, blue-collar, working-class, think Italian, Irish, German, Jews uh, with strong religious ties. Uh, nowadays, those people have been replaced more with, um, you know, Asians and Latins. But it, the same, same uh, thread of politics still remains true. These are not liberal people. These are Democrats in the fact that they are working class people. Archie Bunker. Yes. Archie Bunker. You needed Archie. Free. Exactly. Edith and Archie were the perfect stereotype for Queens in the 80s. And these people were not voting for a queer. That's what they would have called them. OK, they would have called them a queer. And I can tell you, as growing up uh, gay in Queens in the 90s, I might as well have been on Neptune. When you think of Greenwich Village and, you know, uh, Chelsea and now Hell's Kitchen and how everybody's walking around hand in hand, I couldn't have been further Okay, just a few miles away in Queens, I could not have been further from that world or that openness or anything like that. And nobody around me identified as a Republican. They were Democrats and they voted for people like Koch and then they voted for a guy like Julianne. And it's uh, it's to say that this guy would have gotten elected in the 80s and 90s. He did it for his politics or for whatever reason. And, and, and the final thing I want to say as a gay man, you never out another gay person. That's like Cardinal Rule 101. You just don't do it. It's, 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 
improper. Okay. It's even even improper. if they're even if they're a hypocrite in office, which nobody is saying Koch was. But what if you had somebody in office leading one particular, you know, leading their life, but on public stage, being totally opposed to everything they themselves are standing for? He would not have gotten into office and done all the great things he did for the gay community in New York if he was the person they want him to be. He would have never gotten beyond yeah, you've made that point. organizer in yeah. Greenwich Village. Okay, God, you know what? Hey, can I just, Here's my final thought. By the way, thank you, Phil. That was all very, very interesting and, and illuminating, and I'm glad you, you put the bridge into the, uh, into the mix. The Smirconish Podcast for Independent Minds. Listen to Michael Smirconish live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.